The following podcast may be unsuitable for children or more sensitive listeners and may contain explicit language. Local terrorist organization, sorry about no apocalypse. <laughs> Something like that. Hello, individual. You're listening to WBEZ's It's All True podcast. Powered by America's second favorite source for fake news, thewhiskeyjournal.com. I'm your host, Tim Barnes, and you just heard a fake news headline from comedian Eugene Merman. In each episode, I chat with a special guest and then ask them to reveal a funny personal true story. This week, I talked to comedian and author of the book How to Be Black, Baratunde Thurston. There's been a lot of fun of people posting photos of themselves holding the book. And that's almost always really funny. We discuss how we entered the world of satirical news. I started making my own comedic newsletter. I called it Newsflash, and I would email it out to friends. And the intersection between comedy and technology. You get software developers, programmers, comedians to come together over a weekend. They pitch ideas for apps that they want to see. All this, plus his incredible true story. It was me and my friend (laughs) in the backseat, the driver, and the president's riding shotgun. But first, let's listen to him talk at a TED Talk. Technology was a, a big foundation for me. I almost became a computer programmer myself. I didn't quite do it. The placement of the semicolon and how that could just break everything apart, that didn't sit well with me. I'm like, yo, compiler, you know what I mean. The compiler's like, no, I have no idea what you're saying. So I moved on, but I was able to fund my college education in part through technology work, and it's obviously played a big part in my life. Media obsession and knowing things, being informed, was a huge component of my childhood. I remember being in high school classes, whenever I might be bored by the teacher, I had NPR in one ear to tune into, which let you know that that teacher must have been really, really boring if NPR was my escape. (laughs) And politics were unavoidable. As a child of D.C. in the 1980s, it was impossible to avoid it. As a child of this woman, facing the camera in a protest. It was impossible to avoid it. The first book I can remember reading as a child was This is Apartheid, a pictorial introduction. That is some heavy shit to give your kid. And it makes it impossible to avoid politics after that. It's sort of a setting that's hard-coded after that point. That was Baratunde Thurston at a TEDx event in 2014. On the wide-ranging list of his accomplishments, there is the fact that he has advised the Obama White House. And that, well, that just blows me away. Hanging out in the White House and you see all those books lined up, was there a point where you looked in the library and you saw your book, How to Be Black, maybe sitting on the president's desk? I, uh, I didn't see that happen, but I did... The closest thing I could to try to make that happen, which is I brought a bunch of copies of my book with me to the White House, and (laughs) I actually have like a photo of my book in the Roosevelt Room, and I sold (laughs) a copy of my book on the premises of the White House using the square, the the swiping system you can plug into your phone. So I have transacted in in the sales of How to Be Black uh, on the property. I could not permanently install my book in the library or get it into the president's (laughs) office. I wasn't allowed in that room. How do you go about writing a book like that? Because I feel like if you start off with the title, How to Be Black, that's the most challenging title to start off with a book. Yeah, mostly it's software. Um, I I used the computer to write it. 
uh, <laughs> as I do for most uh, of my other writings. You, you know what I'm I asking. I do know what you meant, but I had to play with you a little bit. Look, the, the title was intentionally ridiculous, and I think the absurdity of it actually gave me more freedom to have fun with the idea that there is no one way to be black. So calling it how to be black could put me in the realm of, of absurdity and satire and let me play more than here's a pretty serious life memoir with some observations on race in America. Also, that's a far worse title. Uh, so, so it was a bold choice that was actually suggested by uh, the publisher I was working with, Harper, and I loved it. And it freed me to, to have a lot more fun. How did you discover comedy? What is it about comedy that kind of captured you? Because I feel like with all the things that you do, humor is sort of the center, the thing that brings it all in together. Yeah, I was digging around uh, in my backyard and found like some rocks and a little bag of comedy uh, was out there. And I just started mining that. And it was That's a very really Jimmy like Hendrix a little hidden gem in, in Washington, D.C. where I grew up. <laughs> humor is a through line now. It wasn't when I was very young. I was much more righteous and serious about everything and uh, upset with injustice in the world. And my humor was born out of consuming it a lot as a kid. We, we watched funny shows on TV. My mom and my sister and I, we did road trips and would listen to like Garrison Keillor and tapes of Bill Cosby and Whoopi Goldberg. But really it was the news that brought me to the, to the jokes. And I would get very frustrated with what was happening in the world. And I started making my own comedic newsletter as an outlet for dealing with some of the absurdity of that world. I called it Newsflash, and I would email it out to friends. That was Newsflash with a PH, That's right? That's right, because it was fat. Yeah. <laughs> what, uh, what was the sort of spin that you put on the news in your emails? Uh, I would say the right spin, uh, because I was correct on everything that I thought I had an opinion uh, about. It was a um, cut through the noise, tell it like it is. Uh, no BS zone kind of take on things. Definitely from a political perspective, more liberal. Uh, that's, that's who I am. And a lot of sort of playfulness and absurdity. I didn't, when I started doing this, this was a 1996, and I didn't know that there was a, even a thing called The Onion. I would find that maybe a year later as their online presence grew out of just being printed in Madison, Wisconsin. There was no daily show. I, I kind of thought I invented it for a while. This is a time pre-internet times where you, you could believe that you had an original thought before you could find <laughs> that 50 people on Twitter already said the same thing. Was it sort of soul-crushing when you discovered The Onion? No, like, oh, it was, no, that was the this. opposite. It was exciting. You know, my twist on the news was very much me. Like, I used news copy and news voice. I did my college newspaper, which gave me even more of the language and tools. My older sister was a journalist and still is, and she had sent me an AP-style book really early when I was in college. And so I had the, the format of printed news kind of in my head, but the difference, I didn't, I wasn't threatened by the onion. I was like, it's a pretty big planet. And <laughs> that it was a different voice. You know, the onion was going for straight up news voice. I still had Baratunde voice in it. Plus, you know, at some point you became involved with the onion, the Holy grail, I imagine in your. Yeah. Oh, and, and that's, what's really interesting to me about that is it wasn't it wasn't like when I found The Onion, I was like, I have to work there 10 years from now. <laughs> but that's what happened, you know, and it's, it's sort of a beautiful way that things played out. And maybe they didn't just play out. I was probably headed that direction. I kept writing in that satirical tone. I kept engaging in politics. I kept, I started doing stand-up. You know, the, the humor started in writing and news, but then it ended up on stage with my own voice. Here's the situation. When I started doing comedy, I started to discover that people kind of needed me 
to give the, the okay on certain jokes they had about race. Sometimes people would walk up to me and say, I have this joke about blackface. I w- <laughs> and I wouldn't know if this is okay. Can I run this joke past you? Is there anything like that that happened in The Onion? It's a great question. I'm trying to remember <laughs> if that or anything like that happened. No, it was... The Onion was an interesting place. It was very male, especially on the, the newspaper side. The video side actually had a lot more gender diversity. Uh, it was very white. That's the origin story. Was, you know, Matt, you, University of Madison, Wisconsin is very white, and how organizations start is how they often stay. It's social friendships and connections and things like that. There was never, I wasn't like a formal black stamp inside of The Onion. I was a formal black photo opportunity for all the Photoshop jobs that happened there. So whenever they needed like Obama's hand or the Supremes or uh, the mayor of Detroit, like I was so many black people for the graphics department. Cause that was right there. It was like me and a guy named Brandon who worked in the design and graphics part of the onion. And we kind of held it down for physical blackness. But in terms of like joke approval, they were a pretty sensitive crew. And now you've created Cultivated Wit. What, what is Cultivated Wit exactly for a stranger browsing through the internet and discovers yeah, this website? Yeah, Cultivated Wit uh, over at cultivatedwit.com. is a beautiful <laughs> website, first and foremost. We are uh, five people exploring how humor and technology can play better together. Uh, how can we be funny in new ways that are not just kind of telling jokes into microphones or recording scenes in video and putting them on the internet. How can we play with coding and humor? So we do a, an event series and develop some products uh, out of that space called Comedy Hack Day. We get software developers, programmers, comedians to come together over a weekend. They pitch ideas for apps that they want to see. They then make them in 24 hours. And the best of those go on 24 hours later to perform and reveal that in a product demo. Think of an Apple keynote where they unveil the iPhone. People are unveiling absurd apps that actually work in front of a live studio audience with celebrity judges. Uh, So an example is the winning app from the one we just did at Sketchfest in San Francisco. It's called Well Deserved. We live in a world of excess privilege. Privilege goes unused every single day. Unused privilege amounts to over $4 trillion of lost economic activity. So a man can rent out his ability to walk down the street without harassment to a woman for a price. Uh, Someone who works at Google can allow someone else to have lunch with them at Google and see what it's like to be coddled by the tech industry. I want to talk a little bit about the connection between actual politics and comedy. There are so many satirical television programs now. Uh, so many, I feel like the fact that Hannibal was able to ruin Bill Cosby's career through a stand-up <laughs> Well, set. I think Bill Cosby ruined Bill Cosby's career. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But, but yeah. the fact that, you know, a stand-up comic was the big, was the final thing. I think the meme thing, first of all, was a big strike yeah. for me. But that was the final strike in terms of bringing down this, this legacy in, in a sense. But you're someone who's worked at the White House, but you've also created a website called fuckcongress.com. Right? <laughs> well, okay. Um, you fuckcongress.com. That's true. <laughs> uh, did, did, did make that. And w- I cut you off, though. What's the question? The, the question is, how do you feel about, do you feel like the intersection between the power of comedy and the political world are the biggest it's ever been? 
Yeah, and I should, I guess I should correct you. It's fuckyoucongress.com. It's very <laughs> okay. personal and directed at Congress. Um, and I haven't technically worked at the White House. I've never been compensated uh, by them, but I have advised occasionally. And I don't want to okay, get in trouble or be banished from America yes. for claiming that I worked at the White House. Okay. I also take, don't want to take blame for things the White House does because, you know, this satire and, and comedic world and what's actually happening in politics, I think has been there for a while. I think we're seeing a lot more of it. And if you go back to... Old, more olden times. You want to go all the way back to, to Horace, uh, which is where the name of our company comes from, the cultivated wit, one that badgers less can persuade all the more. There's this speaking truth to power that's calling things as they are. Uh, but I also think we're in a current time with so much media that is not trustworthy. And people are like, okay, wh who am I going to listen to? I've got maybe a priest over here, and a lot of churches have lost credibility of various types for various reasons. I've got politicians who is just so nakedly uh, untrustworthy in many ways because of how much money is in the system and people just want to extend their life in office. And I'm not saying every politician is like that, but many are, and that is a prevailing impression. And then you got these comedians, you got clowns, who don't have much of an interest in lying. They have an interest <laughs> in making you laugh and telling it like it is in a way that maybe you actually want to hear it. And so the, the preponderance I see of all these new outlets uh, exploding and the voice and value of comedy is that we just have so much more noise in the system. We have so many more news choices and political kind of despondency that rising from the ashes of all this despair is the jester who's just like with the funny hat dancing in the corner talking trash about the king. And there is some relief that there is still some outlet for, for that level of, uh, of honesty and irreverence. The, the Hannibal-Bill Cosby relationship is fascinating. I think he was in some ways the fatal blow in a, in a video game metaphor, like Cosby's this <laughs> boss level character that's, you know, you need all this coordination to bring down and partly it was the meme thing, partly it was his age and the resurgence of him with Netflix and NBC sort of unashamedly bringing him back from yeah. his relatively dead career. And also the biography um, that came out. Uh, yeah, the book that yeah. didn't talk about this at all, Mark Whitaker's book, the Dylan Farrow piece about Woody Allen and her claims of abuse. And then in comes another man, another black person, and another comedian. You got this <laughs> trifecta of alignment who just says, oh, yeah, he's a rapist, which he's been saying, but it landed differently because of all those other shots being fired at the same time. And that was like the, the uh, Konami code, <laughs> the, the cheat code that brought down this boss level character at the end of a, a very long video game that he had been dominant in for 77 years and, and, and not anymore. We'll be right back with more It's All True after the break. And when we return, you'll hear Baratunde Thurston's funny personal true story. Here's a clip. It took me maybe five minutes to start really looking out the window and realize every intersection has you know, cops on and motorcycles kind of blocking it. More Baratunde Thurston after the break. WBEZ has an epic new podcast series. Nerdette joins forces with our very own Lannister, Peter Sagal, to scrutinize, talk smack, and make predictions about the HBO blockbuster Game of Thrones. I Listen, like Stannis. What, what <laughs> Stannis is the Stannis? worst. I just feel like... <laughs> This is why I'm here, for these intellectual, subtle arguments. Find new recaps every Monday after new Game of Thrones episodes air. Dragons, spoilers, NPR quiz show hosts. Like we said, it's epic. Subscribe now on iTunes or catch us at wbez.org slash recaps. 
Hello, welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Tim Barnes, and in each episode, I ask a guest to reveal a headline for a funny personal truth story. This week's guest is comedian and author Baratunde Thurston. Here's his headline. How to get bottle service with an Eastern European president. <laughs> it would be a BuzzFeed headline. <laughs> All right, so uh, what, what year are we in? We're in the year 2011. I am in the very small Eastern European nation of the Republic of Georgia. I am in a seaside town known as Batumi, which is on the Black Sea. I have just uh, deplaned from uh, a jet. I am with roughly five to 10 friends from the United States. We are on the plane which is called like Challenger One. It's the Georgian version of Air Force One. Uh, We are on board with nine heavily armed, stocky, leather jacket clad security agents, uh, Georgian Secret Service, as well as the president of that nation, uh, Misha Saakashvili at the time. And we have uh, disembarked from the plane on the tarmac, boarded uh, a fleet of SUVs and black cars, and are racing through the city uh, in a motorcade with every intersection blocked off and lights flashing as the president gives us a personal tour of this economic development zone he is so, so proud of. And has to feel pretty cool. It felt very cool. (laughs) It was not anything I expected to happen at any point in my life. And it took me a while to even realize that I was in a motorcade. (laughs) Because we were in a car. Like, it was me and my friend in the backseat the driver and the president's riding shotgun. (laughs) And so that's just an absurd setup. But the speed with which we tore through that city, it took me maybe five minutes to start really looking out the window and realize every intersection has cops on motorcycles kind of blocking it. And we're just zooming, zooming through. So I'm like, oh, there's a reason that we're not stopping because maybe people don't like this guy and they want him dead. I don't know much about politics, but what would some of the reasons be for people not to like him? Well, uh, he's a president, and (laughs) a president of anywhere is just not liked by people because they're probably doing something that's not good. (laughs) But there are tense uh, military relations between uh, the nation of Russia and the Republic of Georgia, especially at that time, much closer. Just as a a dude, how was he? He's (laughs) This guy liked to party. Like, that was the strange thing. This guy's bragging on his nation. He's only going to tell, say the good stuff, and he's showing us <laughs> all these resorts that they're going to build on the Black Sea. And we've seen maybe the third spot, art and statues and plazas they're going to develop. And then he says, now we go nightclub. <laughs> Which is not something I ever expect a head of state to say. So we file in back into the motorcade. I didn't know we were going to be going clubbing. We, we roll up to the front of the club. We get out of the cars fast. They don't like you sitting in the car and uh, while it's still. And we cut to the front of the line, which is great. That's how I like to enter clubs anyway. I don't like waiting in line. Neither does the president. We have something in common. And we go straight through. No ID check. No weapons check. And we're in a little VIP section that's lightly roped off, as VIP sections are. And there's bottles of champagne. And we just are dancing in our own little section. We can still see the rest of the club. We can go to the bar ourselves if we want. And so we're dancing with the president <laughs> of Georgia in 2011 on the Black Sea at 
midnight. It's a biggie. They're playing Notorious B.I.G. And that's the thing that got me. Because I'm just like, where? We're everywhere. Black people are everywhere. Hip hop is everywhere. America's everywhere. And here I am in this nightclub with this president, bottle servicing it, dancing a biggie. Is that, is that something that you didn't realize was on your bucket list, but afterwards you crossed it off? It's, it's retroactively been added to and checked off of my bucket list. Sometimes <laughs> you have an experience and you're like, yeah, I always wanted to do that. <laughs> but you didn't know until you had the experience. This is one of those moments. Now we go nightclub. And that's the show. For more updates on Baratunde and what he's up to, follow him on Twitter. His Twitter handle is Baratunde. He also co-hosts a podcast called About Race. It's launching with Slate's podcast network, and I'm doing it with two friends, Tanner Colby, who's white, (laughs) Raquel Cepeda, who's Latina. And so the three of us are going to twice a month look at how this country is or isn't talking about race. So be sure to check that out, but not after you subscribe for more episodes of It's All True. Speaking of which, It's All True is a production of WBEZ Chicago and The Whiskey Journal. This show is produced by me, I, myself, Tim Barnes, and Joe Dassault. For more updates on this show and other wonderful WBEZ podcasts, visit wbez.org slash podcasts. Next week on It's All True, I talk to comedian Andy Kindler. I told you not to bring that up. The, the, certain, the certain things that were, I said to you were off bounds, out of bounds, off base, out of money. If you dig the show, please subscribe on iTunes and tell people about it. It's a big help, and it means a lot. My Twitter handle is TimBarnes451, and follow the show at All True Podcast. This is Tim Barnes signing off saying, I believe in you. <laughs>